Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together this week for another prayer meeting. And we pray that as we study from Romans chapter 3, you would bless us and help us to understand more your purpose for our lives and open up our minds and clear us of clear our minds of any distractions that may keep us from understanding what you would have us to learn this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going to get right into Romans chapter 3. Those of you who have been coming, we've gone now through Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 in the last three weeks, and The basic point of the book of Romans thus far, the first 17 verses of chapter 1, is an introduction where it introduces the concepts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then starting in verse 18 of Romans 1, the concept of the wrath of God is brought out by Paul. And it is first demonstrated that those who deny the existence of God will face the wrath of God and the judgment. But then in chapter 2, we see that those who know God, those who know his law, and who break it anyway, will also face the wrath of God and the judgment. And at the very end of Romans chapter 2, we saw that Gentiles who, even though they may not be circumcised, if they keep the law, spiritually speaking, they are circumcised. And a spiritual Jew is not one who makes an outward profession, but one who has an inward experience. And it was interesting, in Romans 2.26, we see that those who keep the law, their uncircumcision was counted for circumcision, and the word counted is the same meaning as imputed or accounted as righteous which gives us the idea that to be counted righteous describes an inward experience. So those are the things that we looked at last week. So the natural question after you study the first two chapters of Romans would be, well, if the Gentiles who are wicked and deny the existence of God and the Jews who know the law of God are all going to receive the wrath of God, what's the great thing about being a Jew? That's, that's the question. And Paul knows what people would naturally think, and so he asks that question starting here in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? So what, what Paul is saying, look, the, the Jews have the knowledge of the law of God, They have outward forms that are supposed to demonstrate their relationship to God. So what's the advantage of that if they, like the Gentiles, are under condemnation? Is that a reasonable question? I mean, why, what's so great about being a Jew and what's so great about keeping the law and what's so great about these outward forms that God asks his people to do if we're going to face the same wrath of God in the judgment. And Paul gets right to the point. He says, so what's the advantage? Verse 2, much every way 
chiefly. So think about it this way. What is the advantage of being God's chosen people? Now, if you study Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see, hey, even if you are among the chosen denominated people of God, you're still subject to the judgment and wrath of God. So you might say, well, hey, that's not so great because I know more, so I'll be judged accordingly. That doesn't sound so great. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, no, there is a huge advantage to being God's chosen people. He says, much every way chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, we should not be ashamed of having the oracles of God committed to us. And the question is, what is the advantage of having the oracles of God committed to us? And I'm saying us here, and it's, let's think about it this way. At the end of chapter 2, Paul shows that a true Jew is one who is is a person who has an inward spiritual experience. And yet he is saying the Jews who even have the outward manifestations, they did have the oracles of God at the time of the Messiah. But he's sort of implying here that God will continue to have a chosen people who have the oracles of God committed to them. And in Romans chapter 2, he shows that the Jews specifically had a knowledge of the law of God. And when you understand basic Bible prophecy, who has the basic principles of the law of God committed to them today? Or who has the oracles of God committed to us today? Who has the most complete system of truth ever committed to people? Absolutely, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So the Jews had the oracles of God committed to them But the Seventh-day Adventists have even more knowledge, even more truth than the Jews did in their day. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't understand the 1844 date from Daniel 8.14 and so on and so forth. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we can read the first two chapters of Romans and say, Man, we're living in the time of the judgment and we know so much. And yet if we're breaking the law of God... We're going to receive the same wrath than if the Gentiles who don't know the law of God, but they keep the law according to their conscience, God judges them accordingly. Isn't it better off for them? And Paul is saying, no. We have a huge advantage because we have the oracles of God committed to us. And so don't ever forget that. And don't ever be embarrassed for being part of a group of people that have the oracles of God committed to them, to us. It's something to be thankful for. And yet, remember that we are all subject to the judgment of God. Now, Paul's going to develop this idea of what is the advantage of having the oracles of God committed to a group of people. What is the advantage? He says much every way, chiefly. He's going to develop this idea Verse 3, he says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So, 
what if there's certain Jews who don't believe the oracles of God that were committed to them? What if certain Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Does that make the faith of God or the oracles of truth that were committed to his people without effect? Was, was Jesus not the Messiah because the Pharisees rejected him? Is 1844 inconsequential because certain theologians say it's not? The truth is still the truth, no matter what anybody says. So, if some don't believe, Paul's asking a rhetorical question, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And in verse 4, he says, God forbid. Now, we're studying the book of Romans, so in an attempt to be systematic, can you think of another place in the book of Romans that Paul says, God forbid? If you go to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Paul asks another rhetorical question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So, in Romans 3, he says, hey, what if some don't believe? Does that make the faith of God without effect? No, God forbid. And then later on, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So, here's the connection. If you don't believe that you can have victory over sin, does that make the faith of God without effect? No way. The truth is still the truth, and Paul's setting out to prove that. And in verse 4, I'm going to come back to that, but to prove what Paul's saying in verse 3, and in verse 5 he says, If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And then in verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? So we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but what he's combating is the idea that some people are saying, hey, and he says it again in Romans 6, the more you sin, the more the grace there is. So that sounds like a good plan to me. We'll have more grace in the judgment if we sin more and more. And Paul is saying, you'll see what he says in a, in a few verses. But let's step back then and look at verse 4. This connects to the idea of what advantage is there to the oracles of God being committed to a chosen group of people. And in verse 4, he starts off by saying, God forbid with respect to some who don't believe. And he says, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. You know, I'm thankful that we can always trust in God to be true because um, from personal experience, I, I can say that you can't trust me or anybody else to always be right on the money 100% of the time. But God, God is. And we aim to, to get to that 100% point. But God is true. He says, let God be true but every man a liar. Do you realize in Hebrews 6 and in the book of Titus it says it's impossible for God to lie? So what 
Paul is saying here in verse 4 is, look, and he connects this concept, he's the same author in Titus, the same author in Hebrews, that if God says something, it doesn't matter if other people say something to the exact contrary. Because what God says is true and what man says is if it goes contrary to God, then guess who the liar is? It's not God. It's that man. It's pure and simple. So if God says, sin shall have no more dominion over you, that's what it means. If man says, sin remains but doesn't reign, that man's a liar and God is true. <clears throat> so continuing on. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. This is interesting here. This is speaking of God. And what Paul is saying here, and he's quoting from Psalms 51, verse 4. And we're going to go to Psalms 51 in a minute to look at the context of this passage. But what we see here is that when God speaks, there is going to come a time when what he says will be justified. So, when God says something, he's true, and he will be justified for saying what he has said, and he will overcome when he is judged. Now, that's an interesting concept, because we talk about the judgment, and we talk about how every man will be judged according to his works, and that's absolutely true. But <clears throat> there's also the element in the judgment of God being judged. And when that time comes, God will be justified in what he says, and he will overcome when he is judged. Now, tying in the book of Romans together, in the same chapter, is there another verse that gives a very similar concept to God being justified when he says something? And I've heard, I can hear someone saying it. It's in verse 26. And in verse 26 of Romans 3, it says, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So let's think about this. In the judgment, God will be justified in his sayings. He will, be over, he will overcome when he is judged. And later on in the chapter of Romans 3, we see specifically what God will be justified in his saying, or what specifically his, let me say this again, what sayings of God will be justified in the judgment? And that is that when he says someone is justified, they really are justified. So in the judgment, <clears throat> hour of his judgment has come, at the end of the judgment, Revelation twenty two eleven, Jesus says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And so the question is, is God justified to say that this person is unjust still and this person is righteous still? Is God just to say that this person is justified? 
Well, Paul is saying, let God be true, but every man a liar. Now, we're going to study what justification is as we go through the book of Romans. But why is Paul, when he speaks about the, the huge advantages that God's people have in having the oracles of God committed to them, what advantage is that with respect to verse 4 of Romans 3? What we see is that <clears throat> Paul is tying in the concept that <clears throat> those who have the oracles of God committed to them have an understanding of a judgment hour message that justifies God's people and also vindicates God's name to the universe. So it may be true that there's a Gentile out there in Borneo who's never heard the name of Christ. And through their conscience, and you can see this in Romans chapter 2, through their conscience, they hear the Holy Spirit telling them, this is right or this is wrong, and they follow that conscience. And God can look at that person and say, they are a law unto themselves, and I'm bringing them to my kingdom. But they don't have the knowledge of God's judgment hour people who say, look, in the judgment, the issues in the judgment are the, the controversy or that Satan has created about God's law, which is his character, and whether or not it really can be kept, even though Jesus kept the law. And when you study the, the themes of the great controversy, God is going to have a remnant people who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And because God says that, hey, let God be true, but every man a liar. I don't care if someone comes to me and says, hey, have you ever seen someone who's perfect? I haven't, so therefore it can't be true. Hey, let them be a liar and let God be true. Because if the Bible says it, that's the bottom line. And so when the oracles of God were committed to his last day people, these oracles gave God's last day people the opportunity to understand that the honor of God's name is at stake in the judgment. Now, the question then is, how does God clear his name in the judgment? How can he really say, this person is justified, this person is not? And to answer that question, we go back to Psalms 51, where the original source comes from. And Psalms 51 is where Paul quotes Romans 3, verse 4. <clears throat> and it's Psalms chapter 51, verse 4. And this is David, and this is his repentance after he had gone into Bathsheba. I'm going to read verse 4 first to show you the context. In verse 4 he says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when, thy, when thou speakest, 
and be clear when thou judgest. So, David is saying, look, I have sinned and I repent of this sin. And because I have repented of this sin, I now can expect that because I've repented, when you say that I am just in the judgment, you, be, you will be justified to say so and clear when you say so. But there's more to it than this. Go back to verse 1. And this is our Seventh-day Adventist understanding of the judgment, really. Starting in verse 1, Psalms 51. David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Does that sound familiar? The blotting out of sin? So David is saying, Lord, according to your tender mercy, I am sorry, I was wrong, I repent. Blot out my sin. And then he says, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. So what's the point? The point is, is that when probation closes, when Michael stands up in Daniel 12, verse 1, or in Revelation 22, verse 11, when, when Jesus says, He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. At that point in the judgment, those who God says are righteous are those to whom he has blotted out their sins in the judgment. So if God, or Jesus, through his blood, blots out the sins of those who have confessed, as David has in Psalms 51, who they have a spirit of repentance, they acknowledge that they are wrong. And in the judgment, God blots out their sins. What record is there of those sins. It's gone. So then when God speaks and says that person is justified or just, he is just to do so because their sins have been blotted out. And what Paul is saying, and actually let's, if you look at Psalms 51, the people who will have their sins blotted out are described in David's prayer of Psalms 51. It's those who have been washed and cleansed from their sins, those who acknowledge their transgressions and ask for forgiveness, those who in verse 10 have a clean heart created in them and a right spirit renewed within them. That's the new covenant. So, Those who have had a new heart created in their lives and they've repented of their sins are the people who will have their sins blotted out in the judgment. So that when the judgment is over, God is justified and clear to say this is a just person. Because it is true that they sinned in the past, 
but, and Satan, I know that you can bring up every sin that they ever committed, but you know what? Um, I've blotted out their sins with my blood, so there's no record of it. And the reason I could blot out their sins with my blood is because they have had their lives cleansed. Their hearts have been, a new heart has been created in their life. I have written my law into their heart and mind. So when we hear that David was a man after God's own heart, those who have God's law written into their hearts and minds will also be people after God's own heart. And it is those people that God can then say, in the judgment, even though there are some who don't believe, they are proven to be liars, and God is proven to be true because he has a group of people that who, like David, have had a new heart created within them, and because of that, he's blotted out their sins. And so in the judgment, God can say, I justified them, I blotted out their sins, because they have had a new heart created within them. So getting back to this point, what is the advantage of being a spiritual Jew? Much every way, chiefly. Because the oracles of God that have been committed to us place within our hands, through the power of God, the ability to vindicate God's name before the universe. And even if, any, even if everybody else in the whole world says, you know, God didn't really create the, the earth in six literal days and rest the seventh, and the, the seventh-day Sabbath doesn't really matter. And we can't really stop sinning in this life. And to be justified means to be declared righteous only and you still keep sinning till Jesus comes. Hey, does that make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. God is still true and they will all be proven liars in the judgment. Because God will have a group of people who he will be able to blot out their sins and say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God, literally, and the faith of Jesus. And so some people may say, I've never seen a group of people that keep the law of God perfectly, so that's just symbolic language. No, it's not. It's God saying it. Let God be true and every man a liar. You see the point? So if God says something, it is true. That's right. We cannot do... Or, sorry, what did you say again? Yeah, that's right. We cannot undo what God says. And absolutely, Jude 24, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And so on and so forth. <clears throat> There's plenty of other verses... Continuing on in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. So here's, here's the point. In the first two chapters of Romans, Paul says, look, if you break God's law, whether you don't know him or you know the law, you are going to face the wrath and the judgment. So then the question is, well, hey, that's not fair. If... We sin 
and because of that we receive more grace, isn't it unfair for God to take vengeance on people who are sinners? I mean, it's a logical argument to make, because if you go out there and say, look, God is so loving that he won't destroy, destroy anybody. Even if you keep sinning, even though the Bible says in some places that you'll face the, the judgment, God's not going to actually destroy you in the judgment. Then the logical question is, well, then how come some people will be destroyed who are sinning while other people who are still sinning aren't destroyed? How fair is that? And Paul is saying, I speak as a man. Humanly speaking, how can you say that some who are sinning will commend the righteousness of God while others who are sinning will face the wrath of God? That makes no sense at all. And so then, in verse 6, he says, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Do you see that concept again? God forbid. Earlier we saw that it's, if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And in Romans 6, the rhetorical question is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is, God forbid. And here the, answer, the question is, if our unrighteousness come in the righteousness of God, is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? And the answer is, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? How could God judge the world if we are saying that the more we sin, the more grace we receive while we keep sinning, and then yet God will pour out his vengeance on some people? It's impossible for God to judge the world based on those principles. Continuing on, verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? So there were some people who were saying, you know, God's truth will abound more and more even if we lie for his glory. In other words, the ends justify the means. And then in verse 8 he says, And not rather... As we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So he keeps asking these rhetorical questions, and then all of a sudden, boom, whose damnation is just. He comes right out and says that if you're saying that you can keep sinning, and that the more you sin, the more the righteousness of God will be commended, and the more grace you will receive. If you are saying that, your damnation and the judgment is just. And he actually says that it's been slanderously reported that we are teaching this. And there's others who say, yeah, they say that. And so that just goes to show you that if there's reports out there saying something and then if others say, yes, that's true, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So what Paul is saying here is let, there is no way that the judgment of God can be carried out in, a, in any way if we follow those principles that let us do good, the evil may come. Or let, I'm sorry, let us do evil, that good may come. So the more we sin, the more grace we're going to receive in the judgment. And that was actually the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They taught that the deeds of the flesh do not affect the purity of the soul. And... In Revelation, Jesus says, I hate that teaching. Now, <clears throat> so after these first eight verses, Paul kind of gives a little bit of a pep talk to God's chosen people saying, hey, don't give up 
your belief in the oracles of God just because everyone will face the judgment of God or the wrath of God if you sin and are breaking God's law unrepentantly. There is a huge advantage to having the oracles of God. The oracles of God committed to his people help us to understand how God's name will be vindicated in the judgment. And don't let anybody tell you that the grace of God will be poured out more and more on those who continue to sin in an unrepentant way. It's just not true. And Paul clears that up so convincingly, I don't know how you could come to any other conclusion if you just read Romans 3. But then he gets back to his point about the wrath of God in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we, and when he says we, he's referring to the Jews, he says, are we better than they, referring to the Gentiles? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So the Jews who have the chief advantage of having the oracles of God, they're under sin. The Gentiles in Rome who don't believe in God as creator, they are under sin. So just because we have the oracles of God doesn't make us better humanly. All it does, it's placed in our hands the opportunity to have a more complete knowledge of God to give honor and glory to his name in the time that we live. And... The basic solution to that is in the three angels' messages. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Now, but Paul's going to prove something here. So he's going to show that it's true that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. And then he's going to show the common link between Jews and Gentiles and how they are all under sin in verses 10 through 19. So how is it that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin? Starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's cited from Psalms 14, 1 through 3. Then verse 11. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Verse 12. They are all gone out of the way, or they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. Verse 17, and the way of peace have they not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound familiar? The judgment, our message is fear God, give glory to him. And this group of people, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then verse 19, he wraps up this whole thought. This is his final punch to the concept of the wrath of God. Verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Who is under the law? Everyone, the Jews and Gentiles. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Let's look at this for a minute. Notice this list effect that Paul creates. So why are Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin? Well, there's none righteous, no, not one. Then verse 11, notice this. It says, there's none that understands. Not, there's none that seeks after God. 
Verse 13, it talks about how their throat is an open sepulcher, their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Is there a common theme? What kind of adjectives is Paul using to prove his point? Well, think about this. If you go backwards, he talks about how the mouth is full of cursing. That's part of our body. And our lips, and our tongues, and our throat. But going even farther, in verse 11, it says, There is none that understandeth. And what part of the body does that describe? That's the mind. So we have the mind, we have the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. What Paul is describing here is called the human flesh. Or the sinful human nature. The sinful human nature is bent towards not understanding God, speaking deceit, mouthful of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, and not fearing God. So the human flesh is naturally inclined to go against God, and the judgment hour message and the first angel's message is fear God, and yet the human flesh is inclined to not fear God. And whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're born with a sinful human nature. We all are. And so, because of that, by the time we get to verse 19, we find that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, when you look at the law, when you look at what the law says, your mouth is stopped. Because you realize that you, along with the rest of the world, is guilty before God. And in the marginal reading of the King James, for guilty, it's subject to the judgment of God. Which means you're subject to the wrath of God because of your human flesh and how it has gone away from God. Now, I'm not teaching that we're automatically under condemnation because of being born. What I'm saying is is that because of our human flesh, we choose to go against God. Now, what's interesting is... As we come later in the book of Romans, where it develops the concept of the human flesh, Romans 7 makes it very clear how the human flesh wanders from God. And what's interesting is Romans 8 shows us that Jesus came in human flesh and lived an obedient life. And because of that, In Romans 8, 3, and 4, it says, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us. And we have human flesh. So, there's good news coming. But when you get to verse 19 of Romans 3, the bottom line is, is that Paul has hammered home the point that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, because of our human flesh, We have gone against God. We have broken his law. And in the judgment, 
if all it was was a record of our deeds according to the flesh, we would be guilty before God in the judgment. And when you understand that, when Paul introduces the concept of the judgment, starting in the next two and three verses, that is where the gospel becomes powerful. It's where the gospel becomes truly good news. Because each one of us, in the judgment, we would be subject to the judgment of God and would be found guilty. Which means that we would be lost. Game over. Because of all the things listed in verses 10 to 19. And humanly speaking, that's bad news. And in verse 20, he pounds home the point. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So here's the point. Because of your human flesh, you along with the rest of the world has gone against God at least once in your life. So it doesn't matter what you do the rest of your life, you are not going to be justified in his sight. Period. But yet in Romans 2 it says, not the hearers of the law shall be justified before God, but the doers of the law. So he's not saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you do. And this is probably where some people got the idea, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, because no matter what you do, the deeds of the law will not justify you. Therefore, you can do anything and the grace of God will abound more and more. And he's not saying that. He's saying in Romans 2, the doers of the law are justified, but the deeds of the law will not justify you. And so we're going to develop that idea in coming studies. But the bottom line is, to this point in Romans 3, we have shown that all the world is guilty before God. All have sinned, in verse 23 of Romans 3, it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we would all be lost in the judgment. Therefore, we all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying in Romans 3 as well is that the good news of the gospel is that it brings eternal salvation to all who accept it. And those who have the oracles of God committed to them have the extra understanding of the judgment hour message that will vindicate, vindicate God's name in the judgment. And so we are going to develop those concepts. God's name will be vindicated in the judgment through his righteousness. His righteousness in the lives of his people. And it's in the just who live by faith. That's how God's name will be, be vindicated.